My first question to my small group is always, what did I say that was heretical? That typically starts a good conversation. Um, good morning. I'm Chris. If you are with us in person or online, we're glad that you are engaging in some form or fashion. Um, if you're new with us today, you caught us in week three of a season called Lent. Um, Lent is a part of the yearly rhythms of the church calendar uh, that's meant to remind us of the truths of the gospel and the rhythms of the gospel and serves, it can serve, uh, as a yearly reminder as to what God has done and is doing. Um, and so, so Advent is like the free gift of Christ, right? That's when we remember this. Uh, Easter, God's victory over death and sin and propitiation of sins, forgiveness of sins by his death and resurrection, Pentecost, the indwelling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And Lent is the one season that we might want to leave out if we could, because it calls our hearts to remember that repentance is a necessary step in the door to salvation, right? And surely the most unpopular step of what it means to be a Christian in our culture today. I'll take empowering of the Holy Spirit. I'll take gifts. I'll take that. But repentance and changing, leave that at the door. Um, And so in this way, I find it as a welcome reminder of us, uh, to us, uh, to remember together um, the path of salvation, the path that we're on, the path that we want to continue walking on. So it's marked, Lent is marked by fasting, and it is an invitation for the Lord to point out areas in our hearts and lives where we have unknowingly drifted from him. That's what we're getting after, right? Where things have grown up in the landscape of our lives, like the winter landscape often does invite growth that we don't want in our garden, right? Um, In our choking out the ability for God to bear his fruit in the interior of our lives. So we are gardeners at my house, and all of this has a particular relevance uh, to me as we are tilling the soil of the land. So too, I think God calls us to till the soil of our hearts so that his word can grow. So the heart position of Lent is highly unpopular, and it's what we see in David's prayer in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the position of acknowledging in humility before the Lord, um, Lord, you alone have the keys to life. That's what I think at its best Uh, Lent can do for us, right? So last week we said repentance is the most liberating, life-filled invitation known to man because it's an invitation to forsake the thing that you have been clutching to your chest that is killing you. That's what we said last week about repentance. And I was really just trying to uh, show you that the utter humiliation of admitting you're wrong. Anyone want to argue with that? All right. Some of us, does anyone know one struggles with that? The utter humiliation of admitting you are wrong is not to be avoided at all cost. That's what I was trying to say last week. Pretty simple. The utter humiliation of admitting you are wrong is not, like some people think, to be avoided at all costs, but rather is the door that leads to life. Look at me. It's the door that leads to life with you and God. It is the door that leads to life to you and your spouse and your friends and your relationship. It is the door that leads to life. If you want that thing to flourish, (laughs) unless you're perfect, you will have to routinely endure the utter humiliation of admitting you're wrong. And while it may feel like death, it is the birth of a new thing, new trust, new relationship, new flourishing. 
Repentance, we said, is a call back to sanity. It's a call back to flourishing because it is turning from sin to God to call back to life. So last week, what we focused on, y'all, I'm just, I'm dovetailing here, is a turning from sin, right? So define sin as, you know, uh, a turning away from God and pride that believes that I know better than God. That's how we can define sin, right? That's sin at its root, right? I know better than you. The Bible is going to condemn sin as evil. So all the things that come into your mind when you think of sin, right? Violence, hate, sexual perversion, lust, adultery, slander, deceit. That's what we were talking about last week. That's what we repent of, right? Turning away from those things because we trust God knows how the human machine runs best. So do I want security? Yes. Do I want to be successful? Yeah, I ain't gonna lie. Yeah. Do I want to be happy? Yeah, I want to be happy. But I will not employ any of those means to achieve those things because I trust in the wisdom of God, not my own. There are plenty of times when deceiving someone is a handy tool to employ to get my happiness. But as a Christian, what what it means to be a Christian and to repent from those things is not to employ those tools, but in that moment, trust the sovereignty and wisdom of the Lord. There's a lot there. That was last week. But I want to add something to our conversation that may slip past us when we talk about obstacles in between us and God, okay? So what do I mean when I say obstacles? Okay, so let's, let's get some definitions and clear the floor for us right here. First of all, God has removed all of the obstacles between him and you on his side in Christ. The greatest obstacle between us and the Lord was, get your Bible head on, here we go, his wrath towards sin. Can we talk like that today? Amen. Or are we going to head for the door? The greatest obstacle between us and God on his side is his wrath towards sin. And he took care of that in Jesus. He, he cleared the floor. He has placed the punishment of our sins on his son and the way between you and him has been um, the document standing against you that held all of the horrible things you've ever done in life nailed to the cross as blood's covered it. So it talks about removing the obstacles between us and God. That means that his side is cleared. That is the greatest obstacle we could, if that hadn't been cleared, we had no shot of it. Massive obstacle compared to the obstacles on our side. Obstacle on our side, pride. That's it. It's like a molehill compared to the obstacle that he took out for us. And yet, it still can cause us to miss the path of God. You understand what I'm trying to say? The obstacle that stood between us were bigger on his side than on our side. And yet, it's oftentimes, what I'm going to argue today from Scripture, the obstacles on our side that keep us from entering into his life. So, we can turn away from God in pride and overtly run in disobedience. We track, okay, yeah? Turn away from God, run towards disobedience. Adultery, theft, drunkenness, violence, hate. You can run away from God like that. But for the most part, Christians and most people, let's just take the ones I just said, adultery, theft, drunkenness, violence, hate. Most people can get by without succumbing to those really kind of socially debilitating sins that our culture happens to frown upon as well. You think? Like theft, like you probably get by in your life without stealing, like a Snickers bar, right? Adultery, like you maybe, you know, just, you know, you might be able to squeeze by without at least, you know, letting that ruin your life. 
But what I want to sit with today is a much more common Christian cultural experience, which is when we turn away from God in our pride and run not towards sin. Everyone sees those, right? Not towards things that are clearly condemned in the Bible, but rather towards good things that God has created for our joy and his glory and simply elevate those good things to God-like places in our heart. This is how respectable and religious people turn away from God. Not in pride towards bad things, but in pride towards good things. So I'm gonna explain this, but hear this if you hear nothing else today. There are good things in your life that are not sin, that are nonetheless creating barriers in between you and God's liberating life and love he longs to give you. There are good things in your life that is not sin, that is creating barriers in between you and God and the liberating life he wants to give us. And that's what I wanna talk about today. I wanna explore this idea, Hebrews 12. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. So there's two things here that the author of Hebrews is trying to point to our attention. There are sins, yeah. There are sins that keep you from God, but there are other things too. That's what we're gonna talk about. So if you have your Bibles, open to Luke 14. It should be on the screen. We're gonna read it. We'll pray, then we'll dive in. Verse 16. But he, being Jesus, said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. He says, Jesus uh, I'll give you just a little context. I'll give you more afterward, but he's sitting at a table with religious leaders invited to a banquet um, with the religious leaders of his day. So at a banquet, he tells a story about a banquet. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, everything's ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've bought a field, and I must go see it. Please have me excused, 19. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. I like how he didn't really give any rationale for that. <laughs> He's just like, I'm married. Backed <laughs> up. So the servant... <laughs> like you don't need a reason. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry, said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the cripple, the blind and the lame. The servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master, God in this parable, said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Mm, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask um, that you would give us your peace right now. Lord, all of the distractions, the ready distractions that are in our heart um, that long to take away 
our ability to sit with your word. Would you, would you speak peace to those right now, Jesus? God, would you um, open our hearts and minds and eyes to the glory of your word um, and let us be transformed by what we find here. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you a little bit of context before we dive into it. He is sitting at a Pharisee's house at a banquet telling this parable, sitting around a table with religious Jewish leaders. Now, something interesting about Jesus' ministry um, in the progression of the New Testament as a whole, really, is the sequence God deemed right in terms of the invitation to life. I don't know if you ever noticed this in Jesus' ministry and in the New Testament as a whole, but there is a clear sequence to the people he is inviting, which I always thought was weird. It's clear in Jesus' ministry and in the New Testament that the Jewish people were first to be invited, and then presumably the religious leaders amongst those, the first of the Jews to be invited, right? And we're going to see this in several places. I was always confused by this in Matthew 10 and 15. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends the 12 out, but he says, don't go anywhere among the Gentiles. Don't go out there. Go to the, go to, uh, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's, that's who you go to first. Now I thought, Jesus, don't you like Gentiles? I thought you liked us. I thought we were going to get in. And yet in his ministry, there's this sequence in 15 as well. When a Canaanite woman, a non-Jew, comes to him uh, and, and begging to heal her daughter, Jesus says it's not right to throw crumbs, right, to the, to the dogs. And she's like, yeah, Lord, believe in the dogs, they eat the crumbs. And then he heals her. And so there's this weird, I mean, it's very, I was always confounded by that. Jesus, don't you, I mean, I thought you were about this, right? And then in other places, there's this, we see this sequential invitation to life as well. Paul would always go in the book of Acts to the synagogues first. He would always go to the Jews first. And then once they kicked him out of there, then he would go to uh, the Gentiles. In Romans 9 and 11, if you are interested in this or if this is something you've never heard before, you can read Romans 9 and 11. And Paul's going to talk about this in greater detail. But it becomes clear that those invited first were the Jews, right, into the life of God. And perhaps first among those were the Jewish leaders. So the men sitting with him at the table, Jesus is saying, the invitation has been sent to you first. This is what it meant for them, okay? The invitation has been sent to you first, and each of you, sitting at the table with these bros, right? Each of you, and they got it, each of you has given some lame excuse and refused to enter into the banquet of God. He's sitting at the table with these dudes, right? I mean, super confrontational, Jesus was. No wonder they, I mean, he's clearly trying to jar them into reassessing the position they had taken towards him. So there's, there's some context for you, right? The, the temperature of the room just, whoa, when, this happened, when he says these things, right? The thing I want to examine today is not the rejection of the invitation itself, which, by the way, is just as relevant for us as it was for them. What I want to sit with today is the reasons that were given to justify the rejection of the invitation. Is that, is that too many? Is these, big, these are big words. Everyone with me? Okay. All right, the reasons that were used to justify rejecting the invitation, did you notice none of those things were sins? A piece of land, five oxen, and a wife. No sins? No. Is Jesus saying, you shouldn't own any land, you shouldn't buy farm tools, and goodness me, don't get married? Is that what he's saying? 
Are you gonna, how are you gonna live and farm on land without a piece of land? Jesus isn't saying don't buy land. In fact, hadn't God given us the land in Genesis? Didn't he say, fill it, subdue it, have it, it's yours? Wasn't, it, is, wasn't the land his gift to us? Isn't it a good thing? Is he saying that you shouldn't buy hand tools and oxen to, and if you do those things, you're a lazy sinner. You do it with a plow, with a manual plow. Man up. Is that what he's saying? No. Is this, is this Jesus's way of tipping his hat to the ball and chain of marriage? I mean, you can do it, but it's a ball, you know? No. All of these things, all of these things are good things. In fact, all of those things are gifts, good gifts that God has given us for his glory and our joy. The point of the parable is all those things are good things, right? Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Yes and amen. Hallelujah. Praise him, right? Gardening the land, y'all, can be such a healing thing. At least that's what my wife tells me as I'm wheelbarrowing the tons of mulch that she had delivered to my front yard. No, they're all good things. <laughs> they're good things. So the picture that Jesus is painting here is not people who are running away from God in blatant, sinful ways and are therefore barred out of life by an angel with a flaming sword at the door. This is not a picture in which the gates of heaven are being blocked by God. That's not here. It's not here. This is not God punishing sin and saying, you can't come in here. In fact, Jesus came to open the doors, right? What he is showing here is people who are missing out on the banquet of God because they prefer to. They don't want to. When the banquet of God is set before him, think of the language. He said, everything is ready. The work has been done. What do you think of when you think of a banquet? We don't banquet like they used to in back in the day, right? Like maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas gets at the banquet idea. What do you think of? Everything's been done. You can't buy this. This food's been made for you. Come. There's plenty, plenty for all. There's, you don't have to beg. You don't have to plead or connive or manipulate. What do you do when you feast? After your wife has cooked all the food, what do you do? You just relax and enjoy and it's been made. You like that one, um, right? Well, all the things that come. And we, look, what I'm trying to say. That's what God, that's the kind of picture God is painting as what it means to know him. It's a banquet. It's a feast. The work is done. Come and enter into the rest, right? But he's clearly showing that people are choosing, preferring to forfeit the party of God out of preference, right? Jesus is using this language intentionally to help us understand what knowing God is like. It's like a banquet, it's like a party. And if you have a picture of knowing and walking and loving God as anything else, then you need to amend your perspective of what it means to be a Christian. Because this is the picture he's giving us. It's a party, it's a banquet. Are you trudging up some moral mountain to earn? He's saying, man, relax. The work has been done. Feast right? Mm, that's gospel right there. But here, you see, it's not an angel with a flaming sword like we remember in Genesis. That's not here. That's not the thing that's keeping them out. It's not horrible, sinful things. It's good things. And Jesus is saying to us, 
In the end, if you prefer the gifts of God over God himself, you will miss the party. He's showing us people who would rather delight in and indulge in the beauty of creation rather than the beauty of the creator. Which, by the way, all of creation is reflecting. At least, this is their excuse, right? Some of them, also, uh, Kenneth Bailey points out um, that their excuses are really lame. They're like almost maybe made up excuses. If you notice, if you actually read them, what they said was, I've bought some land sight unseen, and now I need to go see what it looks like. And the other guy said, I've, it's like a guy, it's like you came up and said, hey, man, I just bought five F-150s, but I haven't looked at them, so I better go examine them. That's what they said. So they're like a little suspect at best, right? And then, of course, the guy with the wife, but he doesn't give any qualifying reasons, right? But uh, the point is, whether, whether or not the excuses are legit or not, the point is, it's not the judgment of God keeping them out. It's the preference of their own heart. It's not them saying, it's not God saying, you can't come in, sinner. It's them giving excuses to him, legitimate or not, as to why they would prefer to have the creation over the creator, right? The door's been opened, and it's not a bouncer at the door keeping you out, but it's you yourself refusing to go in. What an interesting biblical reality. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. There it is. There it is. But see, I'm not just going to quote him. Well, I guess I am. Um, It's a mind jarring read because what he does in that book and it's a parable, it's all kind of story it's phenomenal is he, he shows person after person after person who steps up to the gate of heaven and sees how things are in heaven and says I wouldn't like that and turn around and leave it's very very fascinating so, so what, what do we what do we do with something like this well if you feel blocked out of life with God. Can we, I mean, sometimes, maybe, feel like there's a big fat cement door in between you and the Lord? You pray, nothing, you don't really want to pray, you don't really want to get in a word, worship, those things seem, like other Christians talk about that, and you're like, that's weird. They seem to enjoy that. But for you, it's like, I don't know, don't feel, I just not, you know, God seems unreal and distant. There's no horrible, blatant sin in your life. Good mercy, you're a Christian, right? Nothing crazy. I mean, you got little ones, but nothing crazy. But you feel barred out of experiencing the goodness of God that you see in Scripture and that other Christians talk about. They seem to be way more into worship than you. You don't know, right? If you feel barred out of that stuff, if growth and maturity to you as a Christian feels like a pipe dream, could it be that good things not bad things, have grown to unhealthy places of dominance in your heart. And if you had to choose in the end, you know that you would choose those things over God himself. It's good things that cause these people to reject God, locked them out as it were, not because of his judgments, but because of their preference. And that's what this this parable is showing us. Christians believe, y'all, that the goodness of God saturates all of creation, All things and everything in creation reveals his glory and masterful work. That's what Christians believe. Sex, food, entertainment, parenthood, childhood, work, 
travel, hobbies, exercise, recreation, rest, intelligence, knowledge, the sciences, philosophy, oceans, mountains, valleys, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of it reflects the goodness of God. Thank you. All of it does. It's all to be enjoyed. It's all to be reveled in as we worship the creator of creation. All those things are good. And sometimes, y'all, creation can be so good, so beautiful, so enthralling that we are tempted to worship it. Just like in ancient times, when the sun and the moon and the stars were the things that people were tempted to worship and bow down before, so too today, sex and entertainment and that relationship and work and hobbies and travel and money, some pursuit, some delight, they seem so good, they promise so much that we begin to sacrifice at the altar and bow down and worship them. We sacrifice our family on the altar to success. We sacrifice our marriage on the altar to porn. We sacrifice being fully known on the altar of the praise of men. Anything, anything can stop you from entering into life, not just sin. Now, I need now to amend some language that we have been using, okay? I've said over and over and just said it now, there are things that are not sin that are keeping you from God. Relationships, pleasures, jobs, good things, good gifts, right? And I want to be clear. These are good things. God made them good for your joy. So I was talking about that and talking about it in that way. But I need to amend what we've been saying now. Because when you take a good thing that is by nature not God and ascribe God-like power to them, We begin to look to that thing for redemption, salvation, meaning. That's what it means to ascribe God-like power to it. How do you ascribe God-like power to your marriage? Well, you put your entire significance and value on it, right? And you say, if you don't fulfill me, I'm ruined, right? And you put this unbearable weight on your spouse that they were not created to carry. You're expecting God-like things out of a puny little God, not a good God, a little God, right? not a good God. What do we do that with money? What do we say to money? Secure me. Protect me. Fulfill me. Make me happy. Make my family endure. That's what we say to money. We bow down before it and we say, redeem me. Well, you're ascribing God-like characters to something that is by nature not God. And when we do that, we have become idolaters. We have said to something that is not God, redeem me. And I can tell you something, every marketer in the industry knows that everyone's in the business of redemption. They're selling you redemption. They're selling you significance and meaning. That's why it gets at that depth in us that we don't even know why we're drawn to it because it's attracting something deep in us. Redemption, we want salvation. And if you buy this car, people will praise your name. If you you get this house, that's significant. Is it not? Huh? Is it just me? Am I the only one who battles with greed in my heart? I mean, Jesus said, of all the things he could have said, beware of. Beware of adultery. Beware of, you know, he said, beware of greed. Because it sneaks in, man. When we take good things, sex, food, entertainment, good things, and elevate them to destructive places of dominance, 
we then begin to cry to them, redeem me from a meaningless life. Stop the chaos. Give me some relief. It's what we do. It's what we do. And we take good things, gifts that God has given it, and we elevate it to a God-like position in our hearts and lives. And I want you to see what I'm talking about. So when we push good things to unhealthy places of destructive power and dominance, you see why this is a little sneaky? <laughs> you see why the enemy wants to use this instead of the blatant, socially visible sins? It's much more sneaky. He can get you in the grips of this real easy, and everyone's still fine. We're all fine. Everyone's fine. And no one's to know that greed has gripped and controlled your heart for years. You just look like the rest of us. It's just your, you know? Of course, the sin, in fact, I, I think this statement is true. I'd be interested if you, like, if you go to a small group, because this is the kind of stuff I like to do. Sin is any good thing pushed past God's ordained boundaries and made into an ultimate thing. I don't know. You think is that true? I don't know. Figure it out a small group. Open the Bible. But when we do these things, when we take something good and push it past God's ordained boundaries, right, we become guilty of idolatry, which is the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. Right? And if you think idolatry is some archaic, antiquated thing that we are not in danger of, you do not know the nature of the human heart. If you think it's just those like, you know, I can't think of any old people now. Mayans, right? Just the Mayans. They were the ones that were idolaters. They worshiped like panthers, right? We don't struggle with that sin anymore. We are much more sophisticated. You are out of touch with the nature of the human heart. It was a Calvin that said the human heart's an idol factory. And because we are created to worship, we will worship something. Whether it's God or not is the question. So I want you to see the picture, and then, we'll, then I'll move on. <laughs> I'm pressing. I'm pressing. Um, the picture is this, and I hope this plagues you in the name of Jesus. The picture is this. A heart bowing before your TV as it cries out, redeem me from my meaningless existence, oh great Netflix. Pulling your chair up to the table of a, of a feast, a physical feast, food feast. And your heart cries out, my soul be made whole by food. Bow down before it. Sitting in your new car, it's not luxury because you can't afford that, but it's still new. As your heart bows down to it and says, show everyone I'm significant. Put value in my heart and life. It's worship. It's worship. And it's mistaking creation for the creator. We have worshiped and bowed down and sacrificed to things that are not God. So, why the scripture? Why today in the season of Lent? Well, because some of us are in a season of fasting. And fasting is one of the ways, this, um, this is my conclusion, I'm not going to go into a whole other sermon about fasting. Fasting is one of the ways we are able to actually see what things may have grown to unhealthy places of dominance in our heart and life 
Richard Foster says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals things that control us. We cover up what is inside us with food and good things, but in fasting, when we remove these good things, they surface. If other things control us, materialism, greed, lust, it will be revealed almost immediately. There are things in your life that are not blatant sins that are nonetheless choking out your ability to mature and grow as Christians. I'm gonna read this, which I read almost every year, and I hope you find it equally as um, provoking as you did if you heard it last year. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. These are gifts of God. Your basic meat and potato, coffee, gardening, reading, decorating, traveling, investing, TV watching, internet surfing, shopping, exercise, collecting, talking, all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. John Piper, a hunger for God. I think the mantra of Lent isn't, oh, I'm so sinful, as much as I must have more of God. And that's what I'm inviting you into, to begin to say that at the heart level. And if you haven't began fasting from anything, I just want to extend another invitation to you because I don't want you to miss out. Fasting in the Bible was a way they invited God back into their lives. It was. It was a way they invited God's leadership and strength and direction. Look at the Bible. That's how they used it, right? Fasting is a way that we confess not just with our mouths, but with our habits. More than these things, God, I long for you. More than these things, God, I worship you. It's, it's really one of the ways we can agree with the psalmist when he says, which we read earlier, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. As in a dry and real land where there is no water, right? Fasting is a way that we press into that reality. And if you have not started, well, it's okay. I deliberated for like five days before I was like, okay, fine, we'll do this. But I'm telling you, there's some phenomenal reward and, and satisfaction that comes if you will sift through in your own heart and mind the things that may be drifting out of healthy boundaries in your heart and life. It's not a sin, but it may be drifting to an unhealthy place and just saying, you know what, I'm gonna take that away. I'm gonna pull that out. And in its place, I'm gonna replace it with prayer. That's a crazy thought, right? Replace that with just reading this and open the word. I'm gonna replace that with some spiritual reading. I'm gonna read, read a good book. It's gonna challenge my heart and affections towards Jesus. And I'm telling you, when we begin to do things like this, right? When we begin to see that it is the Lord and the Lord alone that satisfies us, right? We can say with the psalmist, 
You satisfy my soul as with fat and rich food. It's God's heart for you. Hmm. So we have food in the first place. So that we would know what he means when he says, I am the bread of life. Let's stand and pray.